I'm Khan and I love stories. I especially love to dig into the historical roots that shape our favourite stories, books, films, TV shows, music and more. Each week we'll take a deep dive into a significant historical event and examine its impact on the media and popular culture of the time. Welcome to Culture Chronicles. All stories start with a great antagonist. Until 9-11, terrorists were a reliable, exotic and diverse villain for Hollywood action movies and TV. In this episode, we explore how the seismic events of 11th September 2001 influenced the portrayal of terrorism on film and TV. September 2001. I was 19 years old and on a hiking expedition in Los Picos de Europa, Spain enjoying the fresh air and stunning views. It was a little after 4pm, and we'd just reached our campsite. We'd cracked open our first Estrella of many when our guide told us to turn on the radio now. Apparently, a plane had hit the World Trade Center. At first, I didn't think too much of it. It was just another piece of bad news, something happening on the other side of the world. We continued drinking and playing Go Fish, listening to the radio as news of the attacks unfolded. By beer three, the nonchalant feeling gradually trickled away. The buildings were set on fire, trapping people on the upper floors, and wreathing the city in smoke. In less than two hours, both 110-storey towers collapsed in massive clouds of dust. The number of casualties was staggering, and the reports of people jumping from buildings were haunting. It was rapidly becoming clear that this was a well-planned, coordinated terrorist attack. Take two. Take two and two, one. This is as close as we can get to the base of the World Trade Center. You can see the firemen assembled here, the police officers, FBI agents, and you can see the two towers. A huge explosion now raining debris on all of us. We better get out of the way. Sometime after the attacks, we discovered the facts that everyone now knows. Al-Qaeda terrorists had hijacked four commercial aircraft and attacked the World Trade Center and Pentagon. The organization was led by Osama bin Laden, who blamed the US and its allies for conflict in the Muslim world. In total, 2,977 people lost their lives that day. That includes 246 passengers and crew on four aircraft, but doesn't include the hijackers because screw them. As well as the people that died, thousands of people were injured or later developed illnesses connected to the attacks, such as from toxic debris. And the attack remains, to this day, one of the most traumatic events of the century not only for Americans, but also for the world. We knew this was going to provoke a reaction, but we couldn't have known what the historical impact would be. We know now, though, and these are the key points. This was an attack by international terrorists on American soil where the motivation was jihadism. And it was also the single biggest loss of life due to disaster in over 100 years in the United States. And finally, it prompted the US to lead a Western coalition into the global war on terror. This focused most of the West's foreign policy on an extended attempt to suppress jihadism for the next 20 years. Good afternoon. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against Al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. These carefully targeted actions are designed to disrupt the use of Afghanistan as a terrorist base of operations and to attack the military capability of the Taliban regime. We are joined in this operation by our staunch friend, Great Britain. Other close friends, including Canada, 
Australia, Germany and France have pledged forces as the operation unfolds. However, we're not here to discuss the geopolitical impact of 9-11. I'll leave that to people far better qualified than me. Sat around a rickety card table, 4,700 miles from New York, we drew three conclusions. Firstly, this was probably going to screw up our plans to fly back home to the UK the next day. Turns out we were right and we had to get the ferry instead. Secondly, this was one of those utterly shocking events that fundamentally changes how people see, hear and talk about the world. It wasn't clear how the USA and the West in general would react. And thirdly, and most importantly, we definitely needed more beer. But, as a knackered old bloke on the wrong side of 40, I do remember seeing just how much the portrayal of terrorism and terrorists changed after 2001. One of my key memories of the footage is the air of unreality of it. It looked like a movie, not news. Before we jump in and discuss how 9-11 influenced cinema, it's worth acknowledging that some would say the reverse is true. Did cinema influence 9-11? Veteran filmmaker Robert Altman, director of Gosford Park and many other films, certainly thought so. In October 2001, one month after the attacks, he was extremely scathing when talking to The Hollywood Reporter. He said, The movies set the pattern, and these people have copied the movies. Nobody would have thought to commit an atrocity like that unless they'd seen it in a movie. How dare we continue to show this kind of mass destruction in movies? I just believe we created this atmosphere and taught them how to do it. Altman continued by saying that he wanted to return to a more thought-provoking and character-driven cinema. Maybe there's a chance to get back to grown-up films. Anything that uses humor and dramatic values to deal with human emotions and gets down to what people are to people. Now, I don't agree that 19 wholesome young men were radicalized by watching too many violent films. I myself grew up on a balanced diet of Steven Seagal films and Tom and Jerry, and I'm a model citizen. However, in an odd way, Altman actually got his wish. Over the next 20 years, films depicting terrorism did in fact become more layered and complex, with less clearly defined good and bad guys. If you're lucky enough to be under 30 or so, firstly, I hate you, with your functioning knees and your hope. And second, you might not be aware of the transition in how terrorism and terrorists are portrayed. If you're unlucky enough to be over 40, you might not actually remember. It was 20 plus years ago, and if you're like me, you struggle to remember what you had for breakfast. 9-11 had a significant impact on the way terrorism was portrayed in movies and television. Prior to 9-11, it was often depicted as a plot device or a driver for an action-packed adventure, with not much attention paid to the human toll of such acts. Terrorists themselves were depicted as relatively one-dimensional villains with understandable motivations, and there was often a lack of gritty realism in their portrayal. Let's get the obvious one out of the way first. It redefined the 80s action movie, catapulted Bruce Willis to superstar status, and was the best advert for why your granny told you to always wear a vest, 1988's Die Hard. If you've not seen Die Hard, I would say stop this podcast immediately, reevaluate your poor life choices, and go and watch it right now. We'll wait. Are you back? Good. Die Hard is a simple yet effective story of a cop, John McClane, who gets caught up in a terrorist takeover of a Los Angeles high-rise building during a Christmas party. The 
plot's incredibly easy to follow, but it's also full of tension and excitement. You really feel like you're right there with McLean, fighting against the bad guys and trying to save innocent lives. You can walk out of here or be carried out, but have no illusions, we are in charge. Think, damn it, think! We've got a fire alarm. I told all of you I want radio silence. Sorry, I didn't get that message. Mayday, terrorists have seized the Nakatomi Plaza. This channel is reserved for emergency calls only. Do I sound like I'm ordering a pizza? The characters are incredibly well written and acted. Bruce Willis is fantastic as McLean, bringing both humour and vulnerability to the role. However, the standout performance for me is by Alan Rickman, peace be upon him, as terrorist leader Hans Gruber. This was his screen debut at 42 years old, which just shows it's never too late for a career change. Charismatic and cunning in equal measure, Gruber is regarded by many, including me, as one of the greatest villain performances in cinema history. Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen. Due to the Nakatomi Corporation's legacy of greed around the globe, they're about to be taught a lesson in the real use of power. You will be witnesses. Rickman's portrayal of a terrorist leader is really unusual. Gruber is someone that you could easily imagine meeting at a swanky cocktail party, and in some circumstances, possibly not involving the taking of hostages, even admire. When Alexander saw the breadth of his domain, he wept, for there were no more worlds to conquer. <laughs> Benefits of a classical education. Although completely ruthless, with a commanding presence that dominates every scene he's in, he is also suave, sophisticated, intelligent, and impeccably dressed. Nice suit. John Phillips, London. I have two myself. Rumor has it, Arafat buys his there. One of the most memorable features of Rickman's performance is his distinctive voice, which is deep and resonant. And he uses it to deliver Gruber's witty and cutting one-liners with perfect comic timing. This use of cutting humor is something that serves to humanize the character and gives Gruber some of the sparkle and appeal of a more classic anti-hero, rather than a straight villain. Gruber virtually always projects a sense of calm and control, even in the face of intense pressure or danger, and this makes him a formidable opponent for the protagonist, John McClane. Well, I would argue a cool, professional opponent is much more dangerous, an unhinged and aggressive villain would often be more intimidating and make for better cinema. Throughout the movie, Rickman manages to make Gruber both menacing and charismatic, at once terrifying and captivating to watch on screen. His performance is a masterclass in villainy, elevating the role of Hans Gruber to one of the most iconic and memorable villains in movie history. An absolutely fantastic slice of cinema? Sure. A subtle and realistic portrayal of terrorism and its impact? Probably not. It is a Christmas movie though, and if you disagree with me on that, you are very wrong. Let's put on a shell suit, grab a pager and fast forward a little to 1997.
I had a Saturday job in a large electronics chain, younger than I should have because I was prepared to work for £2.60 per hour, which is about $4, plus tips. Although I was a terrible salesman, I did manage to get hold of an X-Display tape player and a copy of 1996's The Rock on VHS. To anyone under 25, VHS was a little bit like Netflix but for the olden days. 352 by 240 pixels in all its fuzzy, terrible glory. For reference, that's about one third of what you get on a normal smartwatch and about the same as what you get on a cheap car stereo these days. The Rock is a classic slice of 90s action directed by Michael Bay. Fresh off the success of Bad Boys, Bay directed this film and went on to direct other loud, big-budget action flicks like Armageddon and Pearl Harbor. Secrets have a way of coming back to haunt you. There's a hostage situation on Alcatraz. Rock's a tourist attraction. The one you train to defend you becomes your greatest threat. A battery of VX gas rockets is presently deployed to deliver a highly lethal strike. And the one you abandon becomes your only hope. Hiya. I'm an agent with the uh, F FBI. I'm Stanley Goodsby. But of course you are. The Rock is the story of a group of terrorists who take over the infamous prison island of Alcatraz, and they threaten to launch deadly chemical weapons on San Francisco unless their demands are met. The US government turns to a former British intelligence agent, John Patrick Mason, who has been imprisoned on Alcatraz for decades, to help them to infiltrate the island and stop the terrorists. Enter stage right, Sir Sean Connery. Captain John Patrick Mason, General Sir, of Her Majesty's SAS. Retired, of course. Mason is teamed up with a young FBI chemical weapons specialist, Stanley Goodspeed, and together they embark on a dangerous mission to save San Francisco from destruction. Played to great effect by possibly the 20th century's greatest actor, Nick Cage, it includes a fun scene where Goodspeed launches a terrorist out of a window on a rocket. Stan Goodspeed, FBI. Uh, let's talk music. Do you like the Elton John song Rocket Man? I don't like soft Oh, you know. Well, I only bring it up because uh, it's you. You're the rocket man. How do you like how that works? So, we've got Sean Connery playing James Bond's bearded incontinent grandpa, and Nicolas Cage attempting to chew all the scenery in a 10 mile radius. So far, so bonkers. What about the antagonist of this film? The bad guy in chief in this film is played by Ed Harris. General Frank Hummel, a decorated US veteran, has lost many of the soldiers under his command over his career, many of whom were never acknowledged by the US government and their families never properly compensated. In order to right this historic wrong, Hummel and friends capture Alcatraz, complete with tourist hostages, and threaten to attack San Francisco with stolen nerve gas. 20 of them were left to rot outside Baghdad after the conflict ended. No benefits were paid to their families. No medals conferred. The situation is unacceptable. You will transfer $100 million from the Grand Cayman Red Sea Trading Company account to an account I designate. From these funds, reparations of $1 million will be paid to each of the 83 Marines' families. The rest of the funds I will disperse at my discretion. Hummel has a tragic backstory and a noble goal, but ultimately resorts to terrorism to achieve his objectives. 
Ed Harris is always good value and he does a phenomenal job in portraying Hummel as a great leader who has lost faith in the country he serves and reluctantly resorts to terrorism to right historical wrongs. Now you're possibly thinking to yourself, this film sounds flipping ridiculous. And do you know what? You're absolutely right. I love this film, but it's not winning any Oscars for its acting or writing. Frankly, The Rock is a ridiculously silly film, and Harris is one of the few parts of the film that adds just enough gravitas to keep it from descending into farce. I'd put 50p on Michael Bay demanding a film where James Bond has to break into Alcatraz, and then asking David Weisberg to write backwards from that. However, Harris's portrayal of Hummel in The Rock has some of the common features of pre-9-11 depictions of terrorism. Firstly, Hummel's motivations are understandable to the average person. While I, myself, probably wouldn't steal weapons of mass destruction and threaten San Francisco, most people can understand someone trying to extort compensation for families of dead soldiers. Secondly, and here comes a spoiler for a 26 and a half year old film, go and make a cup of tea and come back in a minute if you like. Turns out, Hummel's bluffing anyway. This Damascene conversion makes three of his more enthusiastic soldiers go full ham and try and carry out the attack anyway, which Hummel actually dies trying to stop. This mission was based on the threat of force. I'm not about to kill 80,000 innocent people. Do you think I'm out of my mind? We bluffed, they called it. The mission's over. Whoever said anything about bluffing, General? Stand down, Captain. This conversion and heroic death serves to redeem his character. And don't worry, Nick Cage goes on to save the day anyway. How, you ask? Because he's Nicholas Flipping Cage. Thirdly, the terrorism isn't really central to the plot. Very little introspection actually happens. It's purely there to add some stakes to Mason and Goodspeed running around Alcatraz, blowing things up and providing an excuse for the next bonkers action set piece such as a Temple of Doom style laundry cart chase and a scene where Nicolas Cage kills a bad guy by jamming a glass ball full of nerve gas in his mouth like a really terrible gobstopper and then punching him to death. And believe me, it's absolutely as silly as it sounds. The Rock is a guilty pleasure of mine, but it's another great example of terrorism being used as an engine to move the action and plot forward, rather than as an interesting concept to be explored and unpacked. Finally, 1996's The Rock should not be confused with Dwayne The Rock Johnson, who has, at the time of recording at least, no proven association with terrorism. So, both of those films were prior to 2001. After the 9-11 attacks, the portrayal of terrorism in movies and TV shifted dramatically. Terrorism was no longer seen as a fictional plot device, but rather as a real and deadly threat to society. As a result, many movies and TV shows started to focus on the emotional and psychological impact of terrorism on individuals and society as a whole. Furthermore, there was actually a shift in the portrayal of terrorists themselves. Prior to 9-11, terrorists were often depicted as one-dimensional villains with little backstory or complexity. However, after the attacks there was a push for more nuanced depictions of terrorists, with some movies and TV shows exploring the motivations behind their actions. 
let's explore these concepts a little with our first choice of film, 2005's Syriana. Directed by Stephen Gagan, this tense political thriller is flipping hard work, but it's well worth the effort. It explores the complex consequences of terrorism on the economy, politics and culture of nations. It is illegal to offer gifts, money, or anything of value to influence foreign officials. This is all business we're talking about, right? You've just visited what could be the most profitable corporation in America. Provided the government approves the merger. Provided there's still chaos in the Middle East. Do you understand what that means? It's like somebody put a giant ATM on our front lawn. Even the title suggests serious subject matter. Syriana is a term used by Washington think tanks to describe a hypothetical reshaping of the Middle East. The bottom line is this is a far cry from Die Hard, and while I definitely recommend this film, it took me several viewings to figure out just what the hell was going on. It's a sprawling, complicated plot, and the director does not hold anyone's hand or over-explain anything. It's the kind of film that benefits from repeat viewings, possibly with a notebook, probably with a strong pot of coffee. However, to me this is the mark of how well it wrestles with some very challenging plot elements that have no simple solution. This was one of the first films I remember watching that made me feel incredibly uncomfortable with the multiple shades of grey it uses to paint its story. Set in various locations around the world, the film depicts the interconnectedness of seemingly disparate events highlighting the ways in which terrorism can create a ripple effect that impacts people far beyond the initial act of violence. And it also shows how terrorism can disrupt the delicate balance of power within a society, creating chaos and uncertainty that can destabilise an entire nation. One of the central characters in Syriana is an American businessman named Brian Woodman, played by the always versatile Matt Damon in full serious actor mode. Woodman is a veteran of the oil industry, and his company has extensive operations in the Middle East. When he travels to the region to negotiate a deal with a powerful prince, he becomes embroiled in a complex web of corruption, violence and terrorism. But mostly, he's there to further his company's interests. What are they thinking? What are they thinking? They're thinking that it's running out. It's running out and 90% of what's left is in the Middle East. Look at the progression. Versailles, Suez, 1973, Gulf War I, Gulf War II. This is a fight to the death. The prince himself is played by the criminally underrated Alexander Siddig, taking a well-earned break from playing Julian Bashir on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. I'll ship to China. Anything that achieves efficiency and maximizes profit Profit, which I will then use to rebuild my country. Great, that's exactly what you should do. Exactly. Except, your president rings my father and says I've got unemployment. One phone call later, we're stealing out of our social programs in order to buy overpriced airplanes. I accepted a Chinese bid, and suddenly I'm a terrorist. I'm a godless communist. Woodman's experiences highlight the ways in which terrorism can impact even those who are not directly targeted by the attacks. He witnesses firsthand the devastation caused by a bombing and is forced to navigate a complex political landscape in order to protect his company's interests. Through his interactions with various characters, 
Woodman comes to understand the interconnectedness of global politics and the devastating effects terrorism can have on people from all walks of life. The main characters he interacts with include a CIA operative played by George Clooney, again showing his serious acting chops and almost unrecognisable, with an impressive beard and 35 pounds of extra pasta weight. One of the great and interesting things about this film that makes it so layered is it shows the good guys, in this case George Clooney, not being afraid to get their hands dirty. If anything happens to me or my family, an accident, an accusation, anything, then first your son will disappear. His body will never be found. Then your wife, her body will never be found either. Now this is guaranteed. Then whatever is the most dangerous thing that you do in your life, it might be flying in a small plane. I'd be walking to the bank. You'll be killed. And a Syrian oil worker played to great effect by Mazar Munir. Unfortunately, most of his dialogue is in Arabic with English subtitles, which don't work too well on a podcast. One of the great things about this film is it really explores the motivations behind terrorist acts, and it depicts the various factors that can drive individuals and groups to resort to violence. One of the most striking examples of this is the character of Yusuf, a Pakistani migrant worker played by Mark Strong. Yusuf becomes radicalised after his family is killed in a drone strike, and he begins to work with a terrorist cell in order to seek revenge against the United States. While the film does not shy away from painting Yusuf as a thoroughly unpleasant individual, it does portray him as intelligent and incredibly threatening. A far cry from the scenery-chewing baddies in older films. The best example of this is this scene, where he's trying to get information out of a reluctant George Clooney. Huh? Method number one. What's your guess? Water dungeon. Did you guess water dungeon? Number two, twisting arm and putting face in feces. Not interested in two. I don't think that place is going to get the best TripAdvisor reviews. While there are better and worse people shown in this film, Siriana does highlight that the comfortable life we take for granted is often built upon immoral acts, even if we're not aware of them. Such as this great scene where one of the protagonists questions the level of corruption in the oil industry. I know, it's hard to believe that there's corruption in the oil industry. Get away with it. Corruption is our protection. Corruption keeps us safe and warm. Corruption is why you and I are prancing around in here instead of fighting over scraps of meat out in the street. Corruption is why we win. Again, one of the great things about this film is it makes you question just where your comfortable life is coming from. Overall, Syriana is a powerful, challenging, in every sense, and thought-provoking film. It offers a nuanced and complex portrayal of terrorism. Through its exploration of the interconnectedness of global politics, the devastating impact of violence on individuals and communities, and the motivations behind terrorist acts, the film challenges viewers to think critically about the complexities of this pressing global issue. And this focus on the effects of terrorism is something that really takes centre stage in our next film. There have been many films that have attempted to portray the psychological impact of terrorism, 
but the one that stands out most for me is 2008's The Hurt Locker, directed by Catherine Bigelow. The film follows a bomb disposal team during the Second Iraq War and explores the toll that the conflict takes on them. And this is another film that's incredibly difficult to watch. The tension is oppressive and just watching the team operate on a sweltering, dusty Iraqi street is very unsettling. An example of this constant nerve-shredding threat is this scene where the protagonist, William James, is defusing an improvised bomb and his protection team, Eldridge and Sanborn, notice a bystander with a phone acting kind of suspiciously and Eldridge and Sanborn are pretty sure that this guy's about to set off the bomb using his phone. 25. 25 meters, roger that. Sanborn! Butcher shop, two o'clock, dude has a phone! Why is Eldridge running? Make Come on guys, talk to me. Drop the phone! Drop your Shit. phone! Hey, boom! I can't get a shot! The actors in this scene are Jeremy Renner, Brian Geraghty, and Anthony Mackie, and this is certainly a much darker performance than when two of them went on to play Hawkeye and Falcon in the MCU. The film depicts the soldiers as being constantly on edge and experiencing extreme stress as they navigate the dangerous terrain of Iraq, not knowing when the next bomb will go off or where it will come from. James becomes addicted to the adrenaline rush of defusing bombs and becomes increasingly reckless in his behaviour, such as in this scene where he finds a massive bomb and decides to remove his bomb-proof suit, citing that it's completely pointless and he'd rather die comfortable. What's he doing? I don't know. <sighs> what are you doing? There's enough banging there to send us all to Jesus. I'm gonna die. Well, that's certainly one way of making the job more interesting. The Hurt Locker explores the impact of war on Iraqi civilians, highlighting the human cost of the conflict. And something that would have been very unusual pre-9-11, the film also shows the soldiers' struggles with post-traumatic stress disorder and the difficulties they face in readjusting to civilian life after returning from war. After a year of constant stress and struggling with PTSD, James returns to the US. The problem is, how do you go back to a life of buying cereal, clearing gutters and chopping carrots when you've just spent the last 12 months absolutely high on adrenaline, seconds from death and dismemberment? Wow, you some shopping? Yeah. Got some soda, we done? Do you want to get us some cereal and I'll meet you at the checkout? Okay. Cereal. Some guy drove his truck into the middle of an Iraqi market. Starts passing out free candies. All the kids come running up, the families and stuff. He detonates. Saying 59 are dead. You want to chop those up for me? Always a difficult choice between doing your chores and going and getting blown up. I'm sure we can all sympathise. Overall, The Hurt Locker is a powerful and intense film that offers a realistic portrayal of the psychological impact of terrorism. It won six Academy Awards, including Best Picture, and has been praised for its gripping performances, realistic portrayal of combat, and nuanced exploration of the psychological toll of terrorism and combating it. 
and it's the sort of complex and multifaceted film that could not have been made prior to 9-11. Overall, the 9-11 attacks had a profound effect on the way that terrorism was portrayed in movies and TV, and it led to a more nuanced and realistic depiction of the human toll of these acts. The theme was that films became much, much grittier and darker, and some would say, much better for it. However, things come and go in fashion. Just like Deadpool was only possible because of how po-faced and self-important superhero films had become, the cinema landscape had become fertile ground for parody and satire. All right, team, that's it. We've got a job to do. Let's go police the world! America! America! Riding on the coattails of very early trailblazers like 2004's Team America, films like 2010's Four Lions again use terrorism for either satire or as a plot device. Liquid peroxide. How'd you get it all? A wholesale shop down the road. What, all from the same shop? Yeah. You mug, you'll get us nicked. No. I use different voices every time I go in. Show me. One of them's well, my voice. Right. Can I have 12 bottles of bleach, please? Yeah, I know, I know what that sounds like. Give me another one. IRA voice. Oh, IRA voice? They're terrorists, Fessel. What do you want to do a terrorist voice? You'll get us nicked. Well, I'll be disguised then, won't I? Yeah, but as a terrorist. And something that came back into fashion again was terrorists who were, and get this, not jihadists. Such as this hilarious scene from 2013's Alpha Papa, starring Steve Coogan and Cole Meany, another Star Trek Deep Space Nine actor. There's a bit of a theme emerging here. As far as I'm concerned, Neil Diamond will always be king of the Jews. You are listening to The Partridge and the Poacher. <laughs> and uh, what I believe is a world first, I, Alan Partridge, a hostage broadcasting live from a siege at gunpoint. Pure class, Alan. And uh, today we'll be asking, what was better in the olden days? Okay, Pat, shoot. I mean, uh, start speaking. So it honestly feels like we've come full circle with the depiction of terrorism, but now with layers of added irony. And they only became possible because we needed a light against how dark the background had become. But that, I'm afraid, is a story for another time. That's all for this week, my friends. I really hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast as much as I enjoyed writing it, but significantly more than I enjoyed editing it. If you did enjoy it, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. If you didn't enjoy it, or you have comments, or you just want to talk about Alan Rickman, please email me at culturechronicles at outlook.com. And finally, and most importantly, thanks to the team at the Too Late Update podcast for the support in getting this podcast off the ground. That's all, folks. Bye-bye for now. Come out to the coast. We'll get together, have a few laughs.